Hello, and welcome to Heilman and Haver, the stage and screen podcast, coming to you virtually from Casa de Quinn and 1111 Studios in beautiful Port Orchard, Washington. I'm Matt Haver. And I'm Greg Heilman. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in local theater and on the big screen. Each week, we will bring you entertainment news and views, celebrate classic Hollywood, enjoy cocktails with a Tinseltown twist, interview talented local actors and directors, and chat with industry experts from L.A. to the U.K. On today's episode, we welcome J.J. Russella to the show. J.J. is Chief Immersive Officer and Executive Vice President for Access VR. He's an innovator in immersive learning and experience design. Formerly Executive Director for the Shenandoah Center for Immersive Learning, in 2020, he led a brain trust for Virginia Governor Northam's Smart Communities Initiative to build a virtual city for Virginia, focusing on v-commerce. In 2002, he founded the Interactive Performance Lab at University of Central Florida, where he and his team designed one of the first live action simulation stages, which would eventually be housed at Lincoln Center in 2016. Author, award-winning film director, critically acclaimed theater director, and producer, Russell has spent a lifetime deploying story across traditional and non-traditional mediums. Clients include various divisions of the U.S. government and military, corporations, healthcare systems, museums, and educational institutions. JJ joins us from his home in Winchester, Virginia. Welcome, JJ. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So, JJ, that is, reading through that bio, that is one impressive pedigree, but it only touched a few of the highlights of your career. You also have an MFA from Rutgers, have directed international theater premieres, have had a film entered at Cannes, won multiple awards for web series, and won Best Picture at the Skyline Film Festival. But before all that happened, you had to start somewhere. So let's go back to the beginning. When did you know that you were destined for um, working in the performing arts? And was there a moment or experience that ignited your interest or just kind of got you fired up? That's a that's a great question. Um, so huh, I, I, it's one of those things that I don't think many people know about me. Um, so at three or four years old, I lived in Pittsburgh, you know, uh, and, and uh, I mean, the real, you know, down home community areas of Pittsburgh. And, and uh, there was an, a couple there. They were um, they were Jewish. They had both survived the, the Holocaust and both of their uh, both of their significant others had passed away. Uh, at a uh, at a concentration camp, and they had fallen in love afterwards. Anyway, they were much older, and um, but they were always very loving around me, and they were neighbors, and and they would. Uh, I always remember the woman would say, "A JJ, a sing a Yankee Doodle," and uh, and I would sing, "I'm a Yankee Doodle." You know, I mean, just all the zeal of a you know three four year old who. Uh, uh, who's just, uh, I don't know, loving life in themselves. And, and I just remember how much it lit her up. And I think from that moment, it was really about, I don't know, the, the emotional healing that I think arts and entertainment can bring people. And so um, from there, I was off. I was a concert pianist as a child and grew to really uh, despise the practice that felt like it was being forced on me. And so when I found theater, there was a freedom in it. So that was my sort of young evolution of being an artist. So one thing that we see through uh, the vein that flows through all the work that you've done uh, since those early days uh, is story itself. You're a storyteller at heart. And that's something that Greg and I are always attracted to. Whenever we talk to someone uh, in any part of the entertainment industry, it's it, it always comes down to what kind of stories do they love to tell and, and what kind of stories can we tell with them here on the show? So um, like you say in your bio, you've spent 
uh, a lifetime now deploying story across uh, traditional, uh, you're a theater guy at heart, uh, and, and non-traditional mediums, including one of the finest novels I've ever read. Uh, I read it to my daughters this Christmas. It's called Chris, The Legend Begins, and it's, it, it's really kind of an origin story about Santa. And, and it's really compelling. Um, it's, it's written in first person uh, by the man himself, uh, the man in red. And you, and you created a, uh, a really wonderful, deep, uh, even conflicted at times character in Chris. Do you think that a strong central character is the most important element in storytelling? And, and, and if not, what would you say is that, 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 that the core of, of a strong story? Well, I think it depends on your purpose, right? That um, um, if, you're, if you want empathy and you want people to identify with the characters, then you need a strong character. Um, if you're doing something like, you know, Zola was doing, you know, um, with naturalism and the scientific study of characters and uh, like the 1700s or something, um, then, you know, they're, they're doing something else, you know, is, is, is plot the main theme and we've got a bunch of characters um, or is there one main character? And then, and then if there is one main character, how do you, how do you identify with them and how do you, uh, how do you wound them um, so that we feel we feel sympathy for them, you know, or we see ourselves in them? I think uh, what's really interesting for me is I believe that we're on the cusp of the next evolution of story, where it's not about watching. We've spent three thousand years sitting on the side of the mountain watching um, theater players tell their stories. I think the next evolution is where the audience member becomes the protagonist in the center of the story. So I think, but I think if, if you're looking for empathy, then you must have a character that is identifiable. I'll tell you one of the things that's frustrating for me is watching some of the movies today that actually have characters that are anti-heroes and are not identifiable. And so you have to find what is the purpose. At this point, you start thinking it's an intellectual journey versus an emotional journey. Yeah, I've noticed that in a lot of films, recently so when i was when i was younger you'd have your villain and your villain was just evil it was a, it was a binary thing you had good and you had evil and it seems like there's a trend these days to make the villains more relatable so i, I look at i'm going to talk about disney about you know in, in a little bit about storytelling but look at maleficent and some of the light when they've done the live action films trying to make a character that in the animated film was just super evil and then making her have a backstory so there's some empathy there so you can relate. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, that, um, that we, you know, we're really blurring the lines even for what are the archetypes of today. You know, as, as we become a global community, all of those archetypes that lived before us that, you know, some of them that even lived in our Commedia dell'arte, you know, and some of our you know, prior theater that, that those characters are no longer identifiable. We now need to come up with a new pantheon of characters that represent us. Is the goth girl a character that we all now go, okay, we understand that person who's dealing with depression or that hurt, you know, and is that now, are we stereotyping on some level? Yes, we are. Um, but, you know, part of that is about trying to shortcutting the story, but there is a danger um, every time you, you use a type to represent, you know, as we know. So how do we tell allegorical stories when we're afraid to brand a type of person? 
And I'm not talking about racial or gender, although that of course is, is the major error. I mean, we look at the last 30 years of cinema and how, and how much you know, we've programmed the idea of what a thug you know, is in a movie, you know, what a janitor is in a movie, you know, um, and all of that is generated from the industry. So you taught for 12 years as a professor of theater at UCF, University of Central Florida. And while you were there, you also served as director of the New York Film Academy's summer acting program at what was then Disney MGM Studios uh, for six of those years. Uh, when it comes to storytelling, Disney has always been a leader in the industry. In fact, you know, being at Disney, even if you're you know, preparing a, a presentation for senior leadership about accounting, financials, whatever it is, there always has to be a story behind it. It always has to pass that test of what story are you trying to tell? Uh, now, Disney's got both live action and animation, and you've got some experience with some different media. Uh, but do the same rules apply for storytelling across these, these different media, like live action and animation? I don't have um, as much experience with the animation um, as with the other mediums. Um, I've written a script and worked on something that, that went to fundraising, but have never actually worked actively on a product. But even while we were developing the script, the same, you know, many, many of the same principles, you know, uh, apply for all mediums of, you know, when it comes to story, your basic structure. Um, and of course, the Western plot line, which is vastly different from the Eastern animation plot line. So, so if you're looking from East to West, there's a difference in how our plot lines are structured. But what's interesting is really the expertise of each medium lives inside of its crew, right? Lives inside of um, the artists uh, who are the cinematographers or the, or the illustrators um, and the animators. I have found that as a storyteller, I've been able to cross mediums if I've been surrounded by a brilliant team, <laughs> you know, um, that, uh, that for me, it all goes back to theater. That theater as the foundation of story is really where I found the heart of, of all the rest of the work that I've done. Now, you have done a, a ton of work uh, in theater itself. What do you give us a little background on, on your work in theater uh, first, but also part of that. What major storytelling differences is there between directing, uh, whether it's uh, live action versus uh, VR projects uh, versus stage? It sounds like stage is kind of where you where your journey in the entertainment industry began. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I began as I began as an actor like many of us. Um, and then uh, we find our, our way into the industry and go, oh, there are other jobs and and there are ways to put your kids through, you know, private school, <laughs> you know. Um, and so my heart goes out to the actors that are out there keeping it, you know, going. So uh, good for you. And I'll tell you that I think VR and simulation is a means of a way uh, to make your bread and butter. Um, so if you're looking for, for, I think, a financial career jump, there are opportunities in simulation and in virtual reality, I, I believe. What are, what are the differences? Theater is live. So you're watching the Indy 500 and cars can crash. And there is something when you know that people are in the moment that as you're watching that happen, it's visceral and real. And as strangely, I've even been able to see some of it in some productions on Zoom over the last four months with some really brilliant artists. But, um, but film, 
you know, I, I remember I, I was I was shooting the Karaoke King and and I was working with uh, Hank Stone, who was in Cold Mountain. He uh, he's brilliant. So I left the camera on him. And for two minutes, he just made different faces. Right. And literally, I remember being in the editing room going, what's going on in the audience? Wait a minute. Show me some of Hank's faces, <laughs> you know, and because there are things that you can cheat. But it also requires a higher polish. Like you can get away with the live in theater where film really, really requires a refinement at the end of the day because our audiences have become so sophisticated. But if we're talking about virtual reality, VR operates more like theater than it does like film. It's three-dimensional. It's in real time, right? So you look at Aristotle's unity, unity of time, place, action, tone, right? Um, those things play out, well, not, you know, not the, uh, in, in VR. Um, so, uh, so I think VR is naturally a home for our theater artists to be able to start creating their own shows. Have you always been inclined to the technical side of things or was there a time that you just kind of thought, you know, uh, that latched onto it or, or something, something come about that, that really piqued your curiosity and your interest? So when did you first make that jump from theatrical and stage to this immersive kind of role? And, and was there something that influenced that? It's been an evolution. You know, you bring up all the different things that I've done even at the beginning and, and you said, you know, impressive career. And it's funny, I just see it as a lifetime of scraping my knee, you know, and, and falling and, and just, you know, just doing the journey, just striving to learn and to create and to try to, you know, make a better world. Um, but the, the journey for me, I started out as a theater person and probably as arrogant as I could be in a, and as an amateur actor, believing I would never do a commercial and I would never do a movie and I'm a theater guy and then um, MFA. And then, you know, I'm starting my own production company and I'm a professor at the same time. And, and, uh, and then the New York Film Academy came through and, and, um, and I was asked to launch the program there. And so I was writing curriculum and I was working with Dan Mackler, who was the director of the program there, who I think is the director of the one at Universal Studios now. And, um, and he's brilliant. And I started learning an appreciation for film and I actually told him the story of Chris. I came up with the idea of Chris my first year there, my first um, year with the New York Film Academy while I was teaching there. And um, I told him the idea and he was like, oh man, that's, that's an awesome story. And I feel like I've already heard it before. It feels that real to me. So a year later, I had a I had a film production company, attorneys, partners, fundraisers, because I'm I'm a producer. Uh, you know, even as a creative director, you know, when I was 21 years old, I directed the international premiere of Clive Barker's Hellbound Heart, um, which opened the same weekend Hellraiser Four opened. You know, and so Clive Barker gave me permission because we wrote him and asked him, okay, can can we do this? And so. You know, you get out there and you you try. I, f I think I might have lost your question in the midst of of answering it. No, I think I think you hit it. Uh, it was kind of that evolution, really. What the the question was oh, when oh, did, oh, when right, did you right, get in? Yeah. yeah. So then I end up in film, and uh, and I end up uh, I've I decided I had wanted to build an acting program um, that taught people how to find the cheese, right? So I went to Shenandoah and built a brand new acting program that had was foundational in theater techniques, 
but was ultimately prepping people for the film and television industry and had a bread and butter of VR and simulation and training, right? Teach them how do you make a living um, while you're trying to learn your craft. And the VR thing became so big and uh, I was asked to launch um, the Institute for Interactive Performance, which is about teaching actors how to be interactive performers and in simulation work. Uh, and, uh, and then I, I went to the Lincoln Center to speak because the stage I designed was, was housed there in 2016. And from there, everything took off. All of the live action simulation. I, I said what I thought simulation should look like in virtual reality. And then all of the entities that I was doing live action simulation with wanted me to build it in VR. So, it, you know, it's so funny, you know, here I am a, a chief officer for a tech company and I'm not a programmer. I, I am, I have none of those skills. I'm a storyteller. I work in the education uh, field as my day job, and it's been really exciting to see some of the applications, very basic at this point, applications of VR in, in the educational setting, taking a social studies class on a, on a trip to the Gettysburg battlefield, things like that, and, and putting them right there. It totally changes the experience for these middle schoolers, and it makes it so much more real. And I just, it's exciting to think about all the different applications of this new technology. And, and the COVID shutdown has really brought a lot of that to the forefront. Um, so much of entertainment has moved online, uh, whether we like it or not. <laughs> you know, we talk almost every show about how we love that the technology exists. It's not a replacement for the real deal. It's not a replacement for sitting across the table and drinking a beer with JJ and talking in person. But it's great to have you here. You know, things are turning virtual with the COVID shutdown. Uh, this year, I was just reading uh, a couple of days ago, the Sundance Film Festival. Not going to be held in Park City this year. It's going to be in space. You sign up, you pay for the ticket, and they they teleport you up into, into space. And you're floating around with the International Space Station. And it's this whole new immersive program that's part of their new frontier program. As someone who's obviously intimately involved in VR and, and immersive technologies, what are some of the most impressive uh, uses of technology that you've seen during shutdown to really kind of fill that gap in people's lives? Well, I think um, for me, the thing that has been really profound is watching people uh, adapt to the pandemic. And, um, and so uh, VR has been thrust 10 years into the future because we've moved beyond our inconvenience and our need to drive and see each other. So uh, I think that, that we're gonna see a lot of adoption simply because of the shifting of the public um, and what our point of view is and, and what we're willing to try that we weren't willing to, to try before. Some of the things that have been most impressive to me, okay, so I'm gonna talk from my own personal experience, like in the lab. We worked with a company called NW Works to train uh, individuals with uh, disabilities um, with specifically different kinds of mental disabilities um, to train them into the healthcare workforce. So the first time we brought a group of individuals who are all on the spectrum, um, the one guy we put on two hours later, you know, he had to be disconnected because he was having such a, a good time, like totally, you know, first off, uh, many of these individuals adapt to VR faster than neurotypical individuals. But the big thing, one of the big things that happened was one of the people that was brought there, a student of ours put in a headset and none of us were paying attention. So the CEO grabs me of NW Works 
and he points at that guy, right, who's in the headset. And he's in a virtual conference room talking to another person who's on the other side of the room behind me. But of course, in their room, they're together. He says, that guy doesn't communicate socially, JJ. So the instructors end up seeing it. They come over, of course, they've been these individuals instructors for quite a while. And we're all holding our breath, trying not to sob as we're watching this individual naturally express themselves, potentially for the first time, only because they had the safety of the mask of VR. It, it, it's astounding. That's incredible. Um, I think my favorite project that I, um, right now that I'm working on is one with uh, Dr. Warren Hofstra at Shenandoah University and uh, Dr. Muhammad Obey through their skill lab, which I, which I have just left. Uh, but we're doing something called the Great Experiment. We're working with the National Constitution Center and others. We've recreated Independence Hall. And come June, um, you should be able to step into the shoes of a historical character and go through a series of levels of experience that culminate in you redebating the Constitution. Wow. Talk about a great application for all those students I was talking about. It's pretty amazing, man. The first time we ran it, which was um, two springs ago, uh, with, with, our, with one of our classes that was helping us develop the product, at the end of, of the debate, a half an hour later, two students were in the room arguing with each other. So I pulled up my camera and videoed them. I'm like, if I can get two students to care enough that a half an hour after the class, they're debating their historical character's point of view, it's a win, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I think right now, the virtual city um, that we're working on for Virginia um, has the implications to have such profound impact across all industries. So um, I'm in awe of that project and, and just uh, hoping that we can shepherd it properly. What are some of the practical applications for that project itself? Will it be say, uh, training police forces, uh, EMS, fire med to, to learn the landscape of the city, things like that, or? Uh... So um, it's based on an idea I call a VOTU, V-O-T-U, which stands for Virtual Online Training Universe. It's really um, the training take on an MMORPG, right? Mm -hmm. A massive multiplayer online role-playing game um, like Elder Scrolls or you know, um, World of Warcraft or something like that, except in VR, you know, uh, I believe that training is probably the first commodity that we're gonna see people adopt. And the reason being is because, and this was actually before the pandemic, is because people would put on a headset if your boss tells you, go train inside of this, right? And then while they're in it, you know, they become infected by it. Not that there wasn't a year ago over 20 million users a month in the United States anyway. So there now is a, an, an audience base. But for me, I think um, one of the biggest applications is going to be the ability to employ um, differently abled individuals, um, retired individuals who need to work from home, veterans with PTSD, single parents. You know, the idea of being able to work from home and support your family. And, and in the past, these individuals have simply been left out of you know, the economy of the ability to participate. So that for me is probably the single biggest. I actually started all of this because I think role play is at the center of VR. 
And I think that in the way that Disney treats all of its employees as cast members, so should VR. That everything is about selling experiences, which makes, by the way, experience is a brand new commodity to sell, right, in VR. And who's better to role play but your actors? So I think it is a huge employment. Um, I had a dear teacher of mine who was on Broadway, was found by a friend of mine uh, and a former a classmate as well, uh, who he was homeless and, um, you know, very ill. And so friends, you know, helped him out. But here was a, a brilliant, successful actor. And so I really would love to find a bread and butter basis for actors so that while they're out there trying to kill the white elephant, trying to make their break, that they have a way to, you know, to pay the daily bread, you know, to cut cut wood and carry water. Uh, you, you mentioned experiences and, and we talk about Disney and we're going to bring up Disney again here. Uh, that's when they restructured the organization last year, the parks and resorts division became Disney parks experiences and products, specifically calling out experiences to your point. And another place where Disney is kind of intersected with your kind of uh, interests and, and, and career is in innovation and from theme parks to film. Disney's always been a company about innovation. It's always been a technology company, even more than an entertainment company, using technology to tell stories and, and that. Specifically, most recently, The Lion King, using virtual reality to create a world where a director could be in one geographical location, a, cam uh, a cinematographer could be in another location, and they're in the same world via virtual reality. Addition to to that, you you get to the point where, you know, you're it, rather than going to a physical location and looking at lighting and trying to line up the perfect shot, you can create these uh, these opportunities within this VR world. But that also then, as you roll that into Hollywood and and you think about cast and crew and as more digital tools come about to replace or change the way they do business, how have you seen or how do you believe that some of these legacy cameramen and other crew members are going to react to these tools? Is it a matter of training to get these people a new set of skills or is there going to be a resistance to adopting these new tools and new technologies and kind of that legacy theater or Hollywood arena? So first off, let me say, I, I grew up in Orlando, right? From middle school, high school, and then later in life, I came back because I, I, I really love Orlando and Disney is, is, was in my backyard. And so I grew up um, with Disney's influence. And, and uh, I think Disney is the greatest entertainment company on the planet. And, um, and so uh, I think Disney is going to continue to, to lead us. And I'm really excited to see what they come up with. Um, you know, where we hear, you know, George Lucas saying in an interview two months ago that in 10 years, we're going to have, what do they call it, deep dive technology where you're hooked right into, um, you know, neurosensors and, you know, you're, you're, you're going to feel like you're actually inside of that, that world. And that's only 10 years away. And we've got to build stories for them. We've got to design the new techniques, you know, it's interesting because film, what makes film an art form is editing, right? 
I mean, we had peep shows and the little penny arcades and all those things, you know, for years. And people were like, okay, been there, done that. Film has nothing else to offer. And then, you know, Eisenstein, you know, shows two, two uh, trains heading at each other. And, you know, all of a sudden um, people are screaming in the theater. And so editing is what makes it an art form. What's going to make VR an art form? I think that choice is going to be um, one of the primary basis of how, of how we transform. Um, and so for me, I, I think what's gonna happen is we're gonna figure out how to help you have a personal story. Um, that's what I think the evolution is. And at the University of Central Florida, we spent eight years building techniques on how to do that. And uh, Jeff Worth hopefully is, is writing a book right now about it. I think he is the world leading expert on immersive, uh, on interactive performance. Um, and he's brilliant. And, um, but I think that's what's headed our way is uh, when we see it happening from first person shoot 'em ups, you know, that it's no longer enough for us to be the voyeur. We want it to be customized for us. And there's a whole new skill set that's going to have to, and, and, and kind of to my, uh, my, my question, a new skill set that has to be developed to tell these stories. Yeah, because now we're getting away from some of the, yeah, some, from some of the tools that we've used previously to some of these new tools. Is, is, there, a tra- is there kind of a, a transition or is it just a whole new industry? Because now you're looking at technology. and So it's, what's so good, man, is that, Every career that exists in the film and theater industry will exist in the VR industry. Your writers, your costume designers, you know. Now, you might not have builders because your builders are building in digital. So um, I think you're still going to need your cinematographers because let's say I build a digital world, you know, just like um, the virtual Lion King, right? That person's, that, that cinematographer's eye that you know, because film right now is in the, you know, in that modern medium is dictating to you where to look and it's got to be pretty and it's got to have your eye dance in all the right places. So I think your cinematographers are going to be needed if we're delivering in a two-dimensional world. But what I'm seeing is our scientists have built digital Legos for us, utilizing things like Unity and Unreal Engine that in a very short period of time, our artists from film and theater are adapting in like two, three months, they're building things that because our scientists have helped us not have to be programmers, we can now use these digital Legos because they've, they've already given us the functionality. They've already handed us the abilities. It's empowering our artists to be artists without having to also be scientists or technicians, but our technicians are adapting. Uh, one of my, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Mark Lambert, who owns The Artisans, which is a 360 company that does beautiful 360 VR. Um, if you're looking for high end 360 VR, The Artisans. So that was my pitch for him. But he was, he did special effects, Sony Pictures, you know, did the Narnia movies and did Harry Potter. And he sees the change in the industry and is adapting to it. And I think is, these individuals are excited and enthralled by the possibility of being at the edge of the next frontier. So we've talked a lot about the applications for the entertainment industry. Going back a couple of years, your VR360 experience uh, entitled An Atmosphere of Hate was featured in USA Today's fifth annual Black History Month magazine, recognizing the 50th anniversary of 
uh, Dr. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. So it gives uh, the viewer a feeling of what it was like to be present for one of the many nonviolent sit-ins students in places like Greensboro staged in the first half of the 1960s. So with the social unrest and, and, and racial uh, unrest we've seen in our country in the last year in 2020, aside from entertainment, what immersive technology, how, how, can you, how do you think it can be used as a force for social change in oh, the future? It's so good, man. It's so good. The generations that come after us are not going to understand our biases because half the time they're not going to know what we look like and what we really sound like. So when they meet us, you know, it, 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 you know we were the, the alien from Mars that they've been their best friend for the last year. I love the idea of employing people and interviewing people through VR. You know, if you're looking at their avatar, you don't know if they're pregnant. You don't know if they're 60, you know, um, and, and it seems a really appropriate way of leveling the field. What I also love about VR is the idea that geographically we start to see an evening of economic valuing of, of uh, job positions and careers and what people are paid as an, as an hourly rate, that you don't have to live in a metropolitan city. You can live in a small community and have that kind of lifestyle. I think what's really important is that we need to get internet to our rural communities so our young people um, are developing the way society is developing. Uh, but uh, ask me the question again, because I think I may have lost the thread. Hey, no problem. So uh, what are some of the applications that you foresee in the future? Uh, and you did speak to this a bit as far as kind of the great equalizer, leveling the playing field um, for folks uh, in, in things like job uh, interviews, et cetera, but social change. Um, how can VR uh, be used for social change and as a positive force so um, VR creates an empathy um, in the experience that is beyond um, anything that we're able to do outside of live action role play, right? Cheap role play, like, um, okay, I'm up the front of the classroom. I, I don't mean cheap, but, you know, really low end role play, which is, um, okay, who wants to come up to the class and pretend to be a misogynist? <laughs> who wants to, you know, so nobody wants to be the bad guy. but if you're really going to experience a story, you need to be flawed. You need to be able to experience your flaws and you have to confront conflict, right? And people are conflict averse. So virtual reality allows a safe place for people to address situations that are uncomfortable. They can do it anonymously. And yet I call it um, visceral learning. Because when you're in, when you're in VR, um, the rest of the world, I think, calls it embodied cognition. That when, you're, you're, when your body feels like it's inside of the experience, that you experience the story through so many more synapses and memory, uh, that, that your memory retention and also um, your empathy and care for the person is on a different level. In part because when you're looking through a screen, that barrier creates what theater people call, uh, you know, somebody will have to forgive me on the pronunciation, a Wehrfremdung effect, which is a distancing or an alienating effect, right? Which causes you to go what or why um, versus a musical, which is the emotional journey. VR pulls you into that empathic journey and makes you feel responsible for your decisions, 
versus look at being a voyeur. You watch television and film. You'll watch people do something you did last week and you will castigate them. You know, how dare they talk to their daughter like that, right? How, you know, how dare they feel challenged at Starbucks for having to stand in line too long. Meanwhile, you did it two hours ago, right? So um, voyeur allows you to judge, but inside of the story, when it's personal, when it's first person, it's inescapable. I, I, I picture yeah, at the beginning of that, you were talking about um, kind of the anonymity of of things and you know i just i just my mind went went right to ready player one and the idea that you're in this entire virtual reality you don't know what the person looks like on the other end you don't know whether they're male female you don't know where they live what their their race is and it's really kind of a, a nice thing to have that i think that anonymity where you're not you don't have those biases like you said because you're you're in this in this virtual world where you're kind of presenting, you know, and on the other hand, there's a, there's a negative to that, right? That you're in that case, you're presenting something potentially that's not genuine, but there's, uh, but, but none of us, most of us don't get to choose what we look like, right? you know, or what we sound like, you know, or where we're from. Um, and so, you know, I think that this allows, allows you to build what you want to be your best self, hopefully your best self. Mm. You know, and so so people judge you on what you say and what you do versus what you look like and uh, what you sound like. Right, right. So we recently spoke with uh, the uh, OCA's Running Man Theater Group uh, down in Orlando, where you obviously spent a lot of time. Um, they do oh, yeah. work with uh, special needs actors, inspiring them. And and uh, I understand your team at Shenandoah University developed a VR program specifically for special needs. You touched a little bit about this before. Tell us a little bit more about that project and how VR can then help the special needs community. Well, I think the virtual city really, for me, grew out of the, the real need to make it happen grew out of that experience with NW Works and, um, and the, uh, the individuals that came and learned how to interview for a job and um, and, and that whole process, you know, they, we took them through the process of being in VR and learning the technology. And, um, and then we took them through a group interview process. Um, and then we let them watch an interview and comment on it. And then they went through a mock interview while they were being coached. And then they had, you know, an interview, um, at the end with a, with a real, uh, individual and, um, and watching their progression of, fear when fear mystery has the ability to create a tremendous amount of fear and to be able to expose people to situations before they have to live through it can really remove so much anxiety you know you think of how many times we mess ourselves up and if we can allow ourselves to live through a really high risk moment or a moment that's important to us um I mean, shoot, don't you think every college student would could value learning how to go through an interview process and simulating that a couple of times so that they don't walk in and trash their first big opportunities? So, um, so I, I really, and then what happened is we realized, oh my goodness, one of the gentlemen was so brilliant that he could actually teach human resources individuals how to employ individuals with different abilities, right? And so 
now we thought, my goodness, this gentleman who a second ago couldn't get a job, who, who, you know, 30 days ago, we were thinking, you know, the job market stops at a 7-Eleven, you know, or a place that has no growth to it, now has the ability to be a specialist who's bringing in $60 an hour or more and can support a family. And I think many of us don't think of these individuals as individuals that have families. And one of my students who is autistic has a wife and children. And and so I think many of the individuals that are dehumanized in this way are going to find a home. I mean, look, even if you've been burned and, um, and your face is unable to be seen in public without drawing a kind of attention, you know, you could live a different kind of normalized experiences with people inside of VR. And um, so for me, VR is, I, I, I love the people working on AI, but I'm all about human to human interaction inside of VR. And by the way, VR is doing something that Disney was really brilliant about, which is the idea if you can, if you can turn your audience members into entertainers, if they can engage each other in story, you now have unpaid employees, unpaid you know, entertainers because they're entertaining each other. So if we're able to build a story-driven world where our non-performers start activating each other inside of story, uh, I think that that is a, a growth of the, of the industry. And then it's a unique experience for everyone. Yes. Yeah, and it's dynamic. It's never happened mm-hmm. before. Now, as so frequently happens, when you have something that has never happened before, you have the naysayers, you have the the purists. Uh, the Los Angeles Times recently ran an article about how uh, projection design is reinventing traditional theater, not just on Broadway, but now it's it's on national tours as well. Obviously, pre-COVID, uh, it, because it always brings a movie-like experience to the stage. What would you say to the theater purists out there? Uh, who see the addition of this type of technology, um, what, what would you say to them when, when they poo-poo this new technology? Do you think that in any forum it detracts from the experience of, say, things like live theater? Or is this just the natural progression as tech improves? Is this just the way that humanity is going? Well, I mean, there are two questions that you asked me there. You know, uh, one, you know, has to do with the people and and whether they want to what I would say to those people is don't use that technology, you know, but I would say for them to encourage the rest of the industry to not use that technology is part of the reason why we don't have a thriving theater industry. You know, I mean, um, where can you work as a theater actor and support a family? Broadway actors talk about needing to supplement their income with commercials and things like that. So, I think we've actually um, gotten to a point with the theater industry that um, it can no longer support itself. I mean, it, it requires donations because it, it, it hasn't evolved enough um, to be commercial. I mean, Shakespeare was about as commercial as you can get, you know? I mean, there are times where he fully sold out to the royalty on the way he wrote a play, you know? But I think he, he was also an artist enough to give us more to give us more than that while doing that. So my challenge would be do that and give us more. 
is but the second question you asked is is there a possibility where it becomes too much oh yeah i mean it's hard to have spectacle while having empathy you know uh you know you can have atmospheric inspiration right but if we're really talking about getting to some of the subtler human moments you know the the whiz bang can be uber detractive but i will tell you man I love the whiz bang. I, I, I want to see it because, because for me, some of the heavier drama, you know, I've got enough in life. I, I'm, I'm, you know, give me something fun. I like action movies. I love Disney movies. You know, get, transport me, give me a fantasy, give me an escape. And I think we can do that in a black room with nothing. And I think we can do it with a brilliant projection on the wall. And I think we can do it with fireworks um, and with a big theme park, you know, final night extraordinaire. You know your medium. And, um, but it, why would you ever ask anybody to stop pushing the boundaries? We must fail. I think it was Harold Clerman um, of group theater said, um, you might have to beat me, but I'm going to quote him. You have to sift through the shit to find the diamonds. And, um, and so part of the problem is because our producers own our, our commercial theater, we're much, much, much less likely to take a risk. Or I, I think 20 years ago, that was the case. Today, I think we're seeing Center Theater Group out of Los Angeles doing really tremendous things. You know, you're seeing um, great productions being, you know, produced at the Kennedy Senators, Center. So, uh, but I think 20 years ago and earlier, we were watching a money dominated industry that wasn't paying attention to how do you support the rest of the country that's doing their work? Yeah. And there's always been the naysayers, right. From radio to television, from uh, silent to talkies, from black and white films to color films. Anytime there's been the, the envelope being pushed and, and progress being made, there's always that group that's, Hey, you're ruining, you're they're saying you're ruining the whole, the whole thing. So you're always going to have that. And we'll always get to the point where, I look at uh, 3D films, right? There was there that time when they were selling the 3D television sets and the 3D glasses. And it gets to the point where when it doesn't make sense, it self-corrects. And, 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 we, and we get and we move forward. As Walt Disney said, we keep moving forward. You know, and, and along those lines, being on the bleeding edge of technology, you're watching these, this, this progress you know, from the front line there what do you see as maybe beyond even VR, there's the next technology that's, that's going to start pushing the envelope and, and, and kind of moving us all forward? Uh, I think it's going to be deep dive technology. I think uh, if you've ever watched the animation uh, Sword Art Online, you know, it's, the whole story revolves around, um, well, here's, here's a spoiler. <laughs> In the first episode, everybody's stuck inside of VR but all of their senses are alive and they're having full body experiences. And, um, and I think that that's where we're headed, where there will have uh, some way of having a, uh, a neuro link that lets us have sensations of touch um, and, uh, and other, other, you know, embodied cognition inside of these synthetic spaces. And uh, we don't even know what that looks like. We don't know what the art forms are yet. This is the frontier. It's not on the other side of the planet. It's not on Mars. The frontier for artists is on the other side of a screen. 
Well, I can guarantee you one thing. Uh, wherever that frontier is, you will be there <laughs> to guide us. So this has been one educational experience for, for both of us, I can tell you. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you, Colin, and the fact that you you read the book and you'll, you'll, you'll like the book. It's, it's, a real, it's real dear to me. And I don't know if you've seen the 25 videos um, that we put together, but um, I mean, top industry people. I mean, one of the composers from Superman Returns did all the music. I mean, it's just our cinematographer. I mean, David Nixon, who's, um, you know, one of the most successful independent filmmakers, you know, it was the director for the whole thing. And, and so, um, you know, anyway, it's, it's, I think it's a good messaging, man. So I, I appreciate you looking at the whole thing. Well, we're, we're glad to have you. And I think one of the really cool things about the work that you're doing is you have a breadth of knowledge and experience in both, we'll just call it quote unquote, old and new, very new cutting edge media. Uh, we barely even touched on Chris and, and the whole uh, Santa phenomenon. I think we're going to have to have you back probably to talk more about VR and everything we discussed today, just to, so we can wrap our heads around it even more. <laughs> and most assuredly at Christmas time, so we can talk about SantaIsrael.com and, and the, the video series you put out. And again, uh, get uh, your book out there into, into more hands because it really is. It's, it's going to be a, um, a, a regular read for the Haver family every Christmas season now. Oh, thank you so much. And, and by the way, you've created a cheerleader in me for your show too. So if I can ever be on or if I can ever be of help in any way or introduce you to somebody, you guys let me know. I'm, I'm, I'm your guy. Well, we appreciate it. And we will definitely take you up on that. Again, uh, our guest today has been uh, JJ Rusella. You can find his book, Chris, The Legend Begins on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, everywhere fine books are sold and at santaisreal.com. Uh, and also by the end of the month, his new website, accessvr.com is going to be live. So check that out. Um, and join us next Friday, January 22nd, when we'll welcome UK film critic Matthew Turner to the show. Matthew is a film journalist, co-host of the Fatal Attraction podcast, co-author of the new book, What to Watch When, and a film noir aficionado. And as Matt alluded to, Heilman and Haver is now heard every week. So you can find us on iTunes, YouTube, Amazon Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. And if you enjoy the show, make sure to follow us and share the podcast with a friend or two or three. We'd love to hear from you, so please join the conversation on Facebook and email us with thoughts and comments at heilmanandhaver at gmail.com. So until we're treading the boards together again, thank you for supporting local theater and for joining us on Heilman and Haver. 